Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Thanks for listening to the latest Football Digest podcast available on all major podcast platforms. Subscribe now through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast or wherever you get your podcasts from so you don't miss a single episode. The one name on everyone's lips this week is Erling Haaland. The Manchester City striker scored a hat-trick in the Manchester Derby last weekend. The first City player to do so in some 52 years before following that up with another two-goal haul in the Champions League against Copenhagen. That brings his total to 19 goals in only 12 games for Pep Guardiola's side. And if he continues on this goal-scoring run, he's bound to smash every record in the book City face Southampton this weekend. Meanwhile, leaders Arsenal will take on Liverpool, whose own Premier League form has been damaging, even if they manage to shore up their Champions League campaign with a win in midweek. Elsewhere, Chelsea impressed against an understaffed AC Milan, but are counting the cost of another injury, this time to a key defender in the shape of Wesley Fofana. And then there's a small matter of world champions. The United States women's national team taking on the European champions, the Lionesses, at a sold-out Wembley on Friday night. Joining me, Peter Staunton and Anita Abayomi for this week's episode of Football Digest is Joe Bray, Manchester City writer for the MEN and Ian Doyle, the Liverpool correspondent for the Echo. Joe, Erling Haaland is averaging about two goals a half at the minute. What more is there left to say? Well, this is the problem. I'm running out of things to say about him and, and ways to say how good he is because he just keeps on scoring and it's absolutely inevitable when the ball goes in the box that, that he's going to score. Um, yeah, I, I think that is going to be the problem going forward. What do you say about Haaland? Because he's going to keep scoring and he's going to keep breaking records. And uh, I think even Pep Guardiola is getting a little bit annoyed about that because how how more how much more can you say about him well one thing i was going to pick up on is that in the champions league he's got 28 goals in his first 22 games that's he's already outscored paul scholes luis figo giovanni elber mario gomez eden jeco luis suarez sadio mané robin van persie and Erden Crespo. He's went to, within two goals now in the champions league of Wayne Rooney and Samuel Eto'o patrick Clivert, david trezeguet kaka Roy Mackay and Antoine Griezmann. I just cannot get over uh, the numbers that this guy is putting up. He's unstoppable. It do, it really does feel like that. It it looks like every time that ball is going in the box, he's going to score. And, and the way that City play is so built for a player like that. And he, the fact that he didn't need any time to get going has just shown how good he is. But I think what's what's amazed me most watching Haaland is he doesn't do anything particularly spectacular. I know, I know his goal against Borussia Dortmund was probably the only real spectacular goal he scored, but he just scores normal striker goals, but he's always scoring them. He's always there. He's always in the boxes. It's his little movements to to make sure he's in the positions. And you can mark him all you like, but he's still going to find those spaces and he's still going to score goals. And I, I just have no idea how you would go about trying to stop him if you're an opposition defender. 
it's actually quite funny because on the weekend, right, when um, City played Man United, I really thought Lissandro Martinez had it in the bag. I really thought Rafael Varane would pull something out of the bag, right? I didn't even captain Haaland this weekend on my fantasy either. Silly me, I know. I captain Mitrovic, who barely played a half. But anyway, anyway, I digress. But it just looks like, Ian, I'll come to you on this. It just looks like there is no, like you said, Joe, there is no way to kind of stop Erling Haaland at the moment. And you you kind of look at it and think, are City now in pole position? Like coming from their Champions League match just yesterday, are they in pole position to now go ahead and win this Champions League? Are we now convinced that they have that final piece to go on and go all the way? Well, <clears throat> all those players that were mentioned before that Haaland's nearly got up to, I think most of them have won the Champions League and he hasn't yet. So I'm pretty sure he'd swap about half of his goals for winning the uh, winning the competition. In terms of Haaland, there's, there's always a way to stop footballers. Always a way. I think Joe hit on it there. Just stop City getting the ball to him. I know that's a lot harder than you, than you think because look how many goals City score. But, you know, I'm trying to think. He didn't score against Liverpool in the Community Shield, although to be fair, that's basically a friendly. And he's not, there's not been many games since then where he's not scored, certainly since he got up to speed. But, there's always a way. But yeah, Haaland is... Um, I think the one thing that City would be worried about is if he got injured. And I mean yeah. by that is that... I know he's only, what, 22? He's 22 still. Yeah. So he's still technically growing a little bit in terms of his body and in, in terms of playing football. But I do think that he does have that kind of physique that lends itself to slight injuries. And I don't... He's had a bit of history of that already. But you know, he wouldn't be the first player that's had a few injuries early in his career and then gone on to, to avoid them. So... I think for a lot of the other clubs, they're just thinking, well, you know, not saying I hope he gets injured, but I hope he doesn't play against us kind of thing because, you know, it, it, it will be very difficult to stop him. But as I said, the best way is to stop the ball getting to him. But against City, that's a very difficult thing to do because even last season, you could see basically when, when he signed, it's like, well, this is going to be straightforward for him. He just has to stand at the far post and they'll just tap it in. And we said, it's almost like that's what's happening almost every week because, you know, City last season won the league with no forward. Well, Ended up being, you know, Jesus played, and we've spoken on this podcast before about what a big fan I am of him. But in terms of City in the Champions League, if they don't win it this year, you have to wonder, you know, when, when are they going to win it? They will win it at some point. But I think when you look at some of the other teams, mentioned Liverpool, you know, they're not particularly great at the moment. There are a number of other clubs who aren't quite at the best, but what is it? October the 6th, still a very long way to go. So we won't be making any predictions just yet. But if City are not in the last four in the Champions League, either he's got injured or something's gone massively wrong. Joe, if I could just pick up with you there. Um, earlier on this week, uh, somebody made the connection between Lionel Messi and, and Erling Haaland in front of Pep Guardiola. And he was quite keen to shut that comparison down straight away. It was, He said that Messi could do without his teammates, but Erling, Erling Haaland needs his teammates to do it. Do you think there's a danger that City becomes so reliant on Haaland that they almost become predictable? And then, as Ian mentioned, the injury problems that he's had throughout his career, if you then take Haaland out of it, then they almost have no function in plan B. Uh, has he become that integral that quickly? It's tricky, isn't it? Because if he's fit, you can't not play Erling Haaland because he guarantees goals. I think he's on about a goal or assist every 40-something minutes, which is two a game, which is an absolute guarantee of of pretty much winning games the way it's going. Um, but I think, yeah, I, I think they'll, they'll look to probably try and create those those uh, backup plans. And it was interesting, they took him off at half-time yesterday 
and Julian Alvarez, I thought, I quite like him. He's quite lively. Um, he did quite well through the middle, got himself a goal. And it looked a bit more like the City of last season and the season before, where there's a bit more fluidity and uh, playing with that sort of false nine, if you like. I know Alvarez is a an, a natural striker, but he, he was doing a bit more movement than than Haaland does, getting a bit more involved in the, in the build-up. Um, but I, I also see a lot, defenders are focusing so much on Haaland, it's opening up space for players like Phil Foden and Kevin De Bruyne and even Jack Grealish. And we've seen a lot of goals of De Bruyne getting more space than he has done in previous seasons. Foden's developed a nice little habit of moving into the space if if Haaland ever does depart um, the centre of the box. And he's got himself a couple of goals in the last few games doing just that. And I think Foden's having a very good season as well. Um, So I, I don't think they would struggle so much without Haaland they just have to change the way they play or maybe revert back to the habits they got into to last season um, and Guardiola said himself Haaland isn't going to play every game um, they are sort of monitoring his fitness and I think they were uh, not concerned but they were wary that he played a lot of games last season for Dortmund and uh, for Norway so they, they will be looking to not overwork him uh, but He's not going to the World Cup either, so he's going to have six weeks. And I think that might be playing to to the way that they're using him at the moment because if they can just get the games out of him to the World Cup and then go again, it's they don't have to deal with him playing a big big international tournament at the same time. Uh, but I, I would guess if he, if he does get injured and, and Pep's right, he's not going to play every game, they will have enough quality players to, to manage without him. And I'm totally with you on that, Joe. I feel like... There's no pattern of play that City haven't already tried without Haaland that it would be so easy for them to just revert back and kind of mm. just do business as usual. And you hit the nail on the head on the head there with Julian Alvarez. That guy, given the time, given the space, he's almost just as scary as Erling Haaland. But he just needs the time, he just needs the space, and he's just as clinical. So I don't see there being any drop off. This is the scary part because Chelsea, I'm a Chelsea fan, Joe. So Chelsea play um, Man City. City on New Year's Day or the day after New Year's Day and I haven't had peace on a New Year's fixture in a very long time I don't think Chelsea's um, won a New Year's fixture since 2016 or something crazy like that so Erling Haaland not going to the World Cup and probably coming back into this team once everyone returns I'm just here like what if he does what he did to Manchester United over the weekend to my team? I don't think I can stomach that or watch that. But one person you touched on was Phil Foden, right? And I've always liked Phil Foden. I think Phil Foden, for him to be able to get into this Manchester City team is an achievement in itself. And I feel like he's been pretty overlooked for a few seasons. Do you think maybe that this season could possibly be his season to kind of take it by the scruff of his neck and be that standout player for Man City? Or is there just not going to be that chance for him to become that player for Man City? And we look at also Jack Grealish as well. They're both really improving this season. Is the Erling Haaland kind of hype going to take away from their shine? Um, possibly, but I, I do think that if Haaland's getting all the goals, it is giving all these players a bit more chance to get rack up their assists and and create more chances. And as I say, I think there is a lot more space with defenders paying so much attention to Haaland. I think with Foden, it's interesting because he spent last season pretty much exclusively on the left. I think his only time he, he played on the right was the opening game of the season when they lost to Tottenham. This season, he's found himself playing more on the right and he's 
doing he's got a partnership that's really developing with Kevin De Bruyne and they're both overlapping and underlapping each other and there's three or four goals they've scored now which are virtually identical where one just provides the overlap and crosses for Haaland and it's it looks easy to stop, but clearly it isn't because the movement and and the the awareness of these players is 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 so great. And uh, I think, like you mentioned, Jack Grealish there, he deserves a lot of credit for for how he's been playing recently. He seems to be playing a part in a lot of goals, but not getting the statistics of goals or assists. So yesterday he brought the ball out of a tight space, ran across the, the midfield, took about three or four players out of the game, and passed it to Riyad Mahrez, who got the assist. Grealish isn't going to get any sort of metrics for that, but he was the one who effectively made that goal. And I think he's been doing a lot of that. And uh, uh, yeah, Grealish has, comes under a lot of criticism when he doesn't impact the game. Uh, but he's he's been sort of quietly impacting games from the left. And if Foden's then moving to the right and Grealish can play on the left where he prefers to, then that can only be a good thing for him as well. It's... um. A frightening prospect. I think they've started a season as well as I've, I've ever seen any team uh, start Premier League, Champions League. And I'm looking around Europe and I'm wondering who the hell's going to stop them. And I just don't see it at the minute. Ian, I, I wanted to pick up on your club here, um, Liverpool. Interesting game against Rangers during the week, which which you would say was a solid reaction to to what happened last weekend uh, against Brighton. Clean sheet, sort of one of these no fuss um, outings uh, at Anfield. One of the things I wanted to pick up on Ian was um, the way this set up. I mean, Mohamed Salah spoke about it after the game that he they had twenty four hours notice that they were going to switch the system. Talk us through what Klopp did uh, and your assessment of um, of Liverpool's shape, whether it made any difference, whether it's here to stay. Let us know what you think. Well, ultimately, I think he looked at his midfielders and went, most of them are rubbish at the moment, so he decided to play as few as possible and just stick all his forwards on the pitch. <laughs> that's basically that's basically what he did. Um, and, oh, by the way, Anita, Jordan Henderson was man of the match. So, yeah. <laughs> so, I still stand by what I said well, a few weeks I, ago. I, I, know that, I know that I'm right about this. So that's, <laughs> um, but, I mean, I mean, let's put it into context. Rangers aren't very good, are they? I mean, I was surprised by how poor they were. I know there are a few players missing. I mean, Rangers, for me, just did the wrong formation. They shouldn't have gone defensive. They should have actually had a bit of a go. Because when they did towards the end, and I know Liverpool had made a load of substitutions by then, they got a few chances and the game next week will be different. But going back to the system, I think uh, they have played 4-2-3-1 in the past a couple of years ago. For I think when they, when they challenged City to the tit- for the title in 2019, they played it quite a bit. Then when Shakiri was playing, when he was there, because he wanted to get him in the team when he was playing well. But it, has, it didn't get seen last season. And a lot of fans were calling for it because it was obvious that something had to change and just changing the players around wasn't making any difference to the way they were playing. So they had to do something. And it it worked. It helped that... <clears throat> It got it got Nunes into the game because going back to the you know what Joe was saying about Haaland and that, that he's occupying certain players because with Nunes was up there and the, you had Diaz was already there and Jota it meant that Salah had loads of space and that's something he's not had this season really he's always been double marked since ever since Mane's gone actually because Mane was the one who would occupy other players and I don't think whoever's been playing in the other third striker position whether it's Firmino or Nunes by themselves has, has bothered you know opposing defenders defenses that much so. Salah got a bit more space. I mean, there's no personally speaking, there's no way they're playing that against Arsenal. I don't think they can play four forwards against Arsenal. 
So I think it'll be a very brave move. And I, I just can't see, certainly not at the, at the Emirates, but it's an option for them. But what's also interesting is that they had Jota playing in the attacking midfield role, who's normally obviously a, a forward. But if they do play that, they do actually have quite a lot of players who can play in that position. You look at Firmino's done a bit there. Obviously, he's not got that, but he never had much pace anyway, but he's got even less pace than he used to have. But he's such a clever footballer, he can play there. And even you're looking at Harvey Elliott can play there. Carvalho, they both can play there. Kurtz Jones, young lad, he can play there. And even Naby Keita, should he ever exist again, he, he, he could play there as well. So it could be something to look, look to, certainly when they're playing at home against some of the lesser teams, but... I mean, let's put it this way. If they play that against Man City, Man City win about 39-0. I don't even think that's an exaggeration. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, they've got to win 37-0 anyway, so... <laughs> yeah, just just the two extra goals if you use that formation, it's fine. <laughs> no, but Ian, um, honestly, the one person that's been having so much stick from the media, I think you already know, not Jordan Henderson, but mm. Trent Alexander-Arnold, right? In my eyes... He has a stinker over the weekend against Brighton. It, it wasn't a great game for him um, against Brighton. And across the season, his defensive abilities have been called to question, right? And then in the Champions League match against Rangers, where he, he didn't really need to defend as much. Like you said, Rangers set up really defensively. They could have given it a go, but it just didn't seem like it was going to happen for them anyway. But he takes, was it a beautiful free kick? I think it was a free kick, right? Mm. Takes a beautiful free kick, gets the goal, all of a sudden, this is why Trent Alexander-Arnold is the best right back, right, um, best right back in England, right? I want to get your opinion on Trent's season as a whole and where you think he's kind of missing this season because it's been an up and down roller coaster for him. Sometimes I think he's great. Sometimes I think he's just absolutely awful. Where's the balance here for him? I think this season, what he was missing was somebody in midfield to help protect him, and. Jordan Henderson played on, on Tuesday and he, he ended up covering for him quite a lot. And to be fair, I think that's another reason why they changed the formation. They needed to do something different defensively. And I know it looks like by playing more forwards, it looks as though they're doing more going forward, but it actually helped that they had two people sitting, Thiago and Henderson in the in the midfield rather than normally just the one in Fabinho. So that helped cover the gaps for Trent. What was also interesting is that Trent didn't get up anywhere near as much as he has done for a large part of the season. I mean, it was against Brighton, in which you're right, he was absolutely terrible in that game. Um, he still, he ended up, at, at one point, he was playing in the centre-forward position. It's like, well, hang on, what's going on here? You know, he's having a bit of a nightmare in defence. You can't just run away from it. Uh, so I think it's it's affected his confidence. The England stuff, I reckon, has affected him a little bit as well. I mean, we've known for ages that Gareth Southgate and Steve Holland have got absolutely no idea how to get the best out of him because they don't want to play really a progressive style of football, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I, we've had been. Well, last time I was on this podcast, spoke about Phil Foden. I reckon that English should build the entire team around him, but there's no. It doesn't seem to be any you know, sign of them doing that. So that tells you what kind of a manager we've said before. What Southgate's like, but that did affect him. I think a bit against Brighton, but against Rangers, a change of formation, the early goal, as you say, settled him down. And I think uh, it'll be interesting on Sunday because Arsenal will target him. But I think if they target him too much, I think they'll be making a mistake. Um, Ian. That's going to be a, a fascinating game. I think it's, you know, Arsenal have this sense of becoming Arsenal in the big games, don't they? You know, whether that's against Man United or whatnot, and they tend just to wilt. 
I just have a feeling that this could be it for Liverpool. I think this is the game that they need to to almost turbo turbo boost their season. I can see Salah score and I can see Trent having a good game. I could just see United uh, Arsenal getting knocked over like bowling pens all over again. Uh, is that very optimistic from a Liverpool perspective? Yes, it's very optimistic. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, for a start, Liverpool will be one nil down because they always concede first, and Jesus always scores against them and always has a great game. So you got to factor that in. So they'll have to score two to win. Um, it's interesting because I do think this will be Arsenal's probably first big test this season. In the that sense, they got beat United, I know, but they had Spurs last week. Don't forget, they overcame. Yeah, they always beat Spurs at home, though, don't they? Come on. Um, but yeah, I do think it'll be an interesting one. I mean, who's the pressure more on Arsenal or Liverpool? Are Arsenal going for the league? Does anyone here think that Arsenal are actually going for the title? Well, that's where I was going to bring Joe in and ask that because obviously it looks like City are going to, you know, canter away with the league. Uh, but the only other side that seems to be hanging with them right now is is Arsenal. I mean, from from a from a City perspective, they signed two City castoffs uh, over the course of the summer. They're you know hanging with them at the top of the league right now. But there's is there any belief from within Man City that Arsenal are going to be the team to challenge them this year? Because I don't believe it for a second. I still think City are expecting Liverpool to come back. And I know Liverpool haven't been, <laughs> and I'm seeing Ian shaking his head there, but just just the way that this, the seasons have gone in the last three or four years is that it's never it's never really over. And uh, Liverpool came back last season, and if they get all the players back, you never know. And Pep, Pep keeps saying after the World Cup, no one knows what's going to happen. Um, but no, I, I think... There's probably an admiration for what Arsenal are doing. Obviously, there's a lot of connections with Mikel Arteta and, and those two former players, but you, everyone's just waiting for Arsenal to to slip up and, and fade away. I, I can see them doing what, what Chelsea did last season, doing really well, and then probably come and play City and lose twice, and and, and that might be it. And that, that's what City have got to do, uh, I, I think, is, is just knock off those uh, those rivals when they play them but uh, it'll be interesting yeah when, when City play Liverpool next week because um, that's the only other big team they're playing before the World Cup they played United the Arsenal game was postponed and isn't going to be played before that so um, yeah I, I think it'll be interesting when City do play these big teams how they fare but um, no they'll, they'll be looking to get as many points as they can before that um, Ian, just uh, going back to Liverpool for a second, there's a couple of things I wanted to pick up on with uh, with Darwin Nunez. Now, I know there's been a lot of comparison with Haaland, both signed for similar money at the same time and whatnot. Um, Haaland is winning that race hands down at the moment, let's be perfectly honest. But since that red card, um, things have been quite indifferent for Nunez. But he said the other night, he gave an interview the other night after the game. First thing that I picked up on that was interesting was that he said um, he's learned his lesson. So he knows what's expected behavior-wise now at Liverpool. So he'll keep his nose clean, more or less. And the other one was he's got absolutely no idea what Jurgen Klopp is saying to him when he's given instructions because he doesn't speak the language yet. Um, fascinating character, Darwin Nunez. Uh, are we going, going to see the best of him? And, how, and what did you make of his form uh, the other night against Rangers? He got a big hug off Klopp uh, after he finished his stint on the field. But it's going back to what I was saying before, is it because they played so many strikers, I think he had a little bit more space to, in which to operate. Although, what I would say is that that was only the third game he started, so we can't really judge him too much on it. You know, I know that you know three games were his fault where he got sent off for the headbutting lad from Crystal Palace, and it was the interesting thing about that. Going back to that, that was the second game of the season, and I'm pretty sure if he'd have stayed on. Liverpool would have won that game and then who knows what could have happened after that. But So it kind of set in motion, you know, a, a downward spiral both for the, the team and for him. But every time he's played, no matter how long he's on the pitch, he always seems to get chances. 
And I think once he once he you know gets his his, his sights in order, gets his radar sorted, I think he will score loads of goals because Liverpool, like City, are a team that create loads of chances. So I wouldn't be too concerned by that. You're more concerned if he's getting nowhere near any of them. I mean, the Rangers keeper Alan McGregor had a, had a very good game, although you could argue that quite a few of the shots were a bit near him. But you know that'll come. He just he just needs a goal. That certainly at Anfield because he's not scored there yet. He's snatching at things a little bit, but. Uh, Again, just looking at the game, having said that on the game on Sunday, I would be surprised if he starts for the reasons that we just mentioned before. Is Firmino injured, Ian? No, no, he's just, um, he's, he's Liverpool's top scorer this season. I think he's got five. I think right. he's, uh, so, yeah, um, for somebody, he's, 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 he's like reverse Firmino. You know, normally he was very good at football, but wouldn't score. Now he's not playing particularly you know, brilliantly. He's scored loads of goals. So which would you rather be? <laughs> Literally, and I, I'm, I'm just thinking here. Would would the better option not be to start Roberto Firmino instead of starting Darwin Nunez, or maybe Klopp goes with this formation and Roberto Firmino can play in that more attacking role, um, attacking midfielder role? But I feel like Roberto Firmino is being a bit overlooked here, um, and Darwin Nunez just simply hasn't been good enough. Well, he's not played, as he? So you can't really tell. The other thing about Firmino is that whether, you know, whatever anybody thinks about him, he's out of contract at the end of the season. He's not, no sign of a new deal. So he's not the future of the club, whereas Nunes is. If he's, if you commit a fee of £85 million, you've got to start playing him at some point. And uh, but I think Klopp, uh, it also Nunes has been affected by the fact, I don't think anyone expected Liverpool to be quite this, not bad, but just indifference, because they've only lost, I think, I think they've only lost two games this season, which is a, at Napoli and where they always get beaten and, and United where they've lost more times than anywhere else. So, you know, I think it's the, the draws that's been, the, you know, destroying them a little bit. But going back to Firmino, I think he plays against Arsenal. I think he'll play. He's got a good record against them. And uh, if you're going to bring somebody on, you know, well, Jota's got a good record against them as well. So Liverpool do have some options suddenly from at the start of the season where they just seem to have, have to play James Milner every week. <laughs> by the way, I just wanted to come back to um, what Peter asked about Arsenal and their title chances. But I just wanted to say, I want to put my neck out there and just say Arsenal are in a title race and they will take it to the wire with Man City up until, I would say, April. I'd say they'll take it to the wire with them and it will no go chance. head to head. It's no a, it's a, to be fair, they're about five games in May, so they'll only finish 15 points behind. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it's still possible. They can take it down to the wire till April, be 15 points behind in May, and then we end the season there. I, I think that they are a really good side, and it'll be so interesting to see how they fare up against Liverpool. And Peter, I'm going to bring you in here. So what is what are your expectations for this Arsenal-Liverpool match? Do you think Arsenal can really take, take them on? Well, the first thing I wanted to say was um, around about 10 years ago, I identified there was always this day in about March. It was around St. Patrick's Day, which I kind of termed Arsenal Day, which was it was a week when Arsenal usually went out of the Champions League. Their league challenge was definitively finished. And, and that was it. Arsenal season always ended around St. Patrick's. I used to call it Arsenal Day. I think that's going to happen maybe this year, before the World Cup, probably, you know, so. But. Look, I have to say, and it's not begrudgingly or anything like that, because I admire Arsenal as a club. You know, I think they've, they've, they've done great recruitment over the past couple of years as well. Very hard to move on from Wenger, obviously. Um, lots to admire about them. Um, and they've surprised me in, in the games that they've played this season, other than Man United, which which I thought was a very typical Arsenal performance, really. The, the Arsenal that we've come to know over the last few years. Um 
other than that, they've, they've, they've really impressed me. You know, the turn Spurs over last week, um, something that I never expected to happen. I think I sat here in this exact uh, chair. Well, it's not a chair, it's a beanbag. I sat here last week and said that um, Arsenal were going to get beaten 3-1 and they ended up winning the game 3-1 themselves. And I think they did a very comprehensive job. So, you know, so long as they continue to confound my expectations, you know, more power to them. This weekend, however, I just always feel that Liverpool, I always feel Arsenal are the ideal opponent for Liverpool. Just the ideal opponent. The way they play football, uh, I think they almost play to Liverpool's strengths. Um, and it's just the way it's been over the last four or five years. When Liverpool need a 4-0 or or whatever, they always seem to get that kind of performance against Arsenal. I, I just have a feeling that that's what's going to happen this weekend. You're, thinking, you're shaking your head there. What, what, I would, what, I would say about, what I would say about the Emirates is obviously, as I'm sure most of us have been, have been quite a few times. The last couple of times I've been, the atmosphere has been a lot better if you're an Arsenal fan. And I think that probably buys into that they've bought into the fact that they can see something's happening. I know Liverpool, I think Liverpool won both games last season, 2-0, one was in the League Cup, but the atmosphere was really good. And I think they, the Arsenal fans, having had quite a few years of, you know, as, as Pete was saying, typical Arsenal, I think they see something a little bit different. And to be fair, Arteta, he, he won the FA Cup, didn't he? We've, so he's, he's, he's already shown he can win stuff there. So he's always, he had the plan, I think, uh, of the way they wanted to play. But as Peter just said, they recruited really well. Nick, too, well, I think, a really good player from Man City. And I, I do think that they're a lot better than they have been. They'll definitely finish in the top four, but no, they're not They're not anywhere near City's level. But then, who is at the moment? Who is? Nobody. Nobody. Anita, I just wanted to come to you here as our de facto uh, Chelsea head in the room. Um, they won, obviously, against AC Milan uh, the other night. Milan had about nine or ten players injured. I thought Maldini and Baresi were going to get a game at one stage. They were that short of players. Um, they did well, though, Chelsea. Potters, um, you know, it was a quite an impressive performance. One thing I'm picking up on early in the Potter regime is um, the goalkeeper battle is is very much back on. Kepa Ritzibalaga, it seems to be his shirt to lose again all of a sudden. I just want to say, by the way, Nesta was in England. He was literally in Wembley the night before, so he probably could have put a T-shirt on and come in because the AC Milan, their defence was absolutely awful. I'm sure he was probably watching, thinking, what on earth is going on here? How do I get to Stamford Bridge? But, um, yeah, like you said, the goalkeeping battle, it's an interesting one because, you know, Chelsea fans and Kepa Rizabalaga, they have a... A love-hate relationship, I'd say. Sometimes more like a hate-hate relationship. I love him. I love him. I think he. I think he's a cool guy. I'd love to be his mate, but on the pitch, I'd like him away from the goalkeeping area. But he's he's kind of showing himself to be a player that could be integral to this to this team. He's better. He's so much better at playing out from the back anyway than Edward Mendy that we've seen this season because Mendy's had a too many blunders to be excused from his mistakes. So Keppel coming in is an interesting battle. I do think Mendy will end up getting his first um his first seat back because it just takes one mistake for Keppel to make and the whole fan base will kind of I don't want to say they'll turn on him, but they'll lose a lot of faith in him. And he's quick to kind of lose that self-confidence and then continuously make mistakes. So I do see Mendy getting that spot back, but it's an interesting battle right now. And it's keeping it's keeping Mendy on his toes. I'm really hoping he's training 
day in, day out to become a better goalkeeper because what we've seen since the start of this season has just simply not been good enough. Um, another Senegalese player at uh, at Chelsea who, who seems to have had the Potter treatment early on, although he played at the weekend, was Koulibaly. Do you think Potter just doesn't fancy him or is it just other people in better form at the minute? What, what's happening there with Koulibaly? Very interesting that they spent so much money on him under one manager and now it would appear that he's you know having to be thankful for a run out um, under a new one. Look, I I just think Potter's just testing the waters to see who he likes, what he doesn't like in a back three or in a back two. I think he's still testing it because he's gone from a back four, he's gone to a back three, and he's kind of just still playing around with what, what he has at the moment. Um, I don't think there's anything in it. Kulabali, again, he's he's been one of the best centre backs or one of the better centre backs I mean, in the last decade. He's he's got a, a pretty decent record as well. He's known to be a little bit reckless. And against AC Milan last night, we saw a bit of that recklessness as well. But I do think it's there's nothing to it. Graham Potter, he's still just weeding out what he likes, what he doesn't like. And I think Kulabali will be starting in this team a lot more. Um he's he's just got that aggression that Antonio Rudiger kind of took with him when he left to go Real Madrid. And that's what we need with our Chelsea players. Not too much aggression, but just the right amount. And Kulabali brings that to the table. And that's why I don't think this gun he's gonna be left out for for too long. Last question on Chelsea, just for the time being, Anissa. I wanted to talk about uh, Wesley Fofana. Uh, I saw uh, I saw him walking through the mix zone last night. Uh, well, hobbling through the mix zone on cr- crutches after his goal-scoring performance against AC Milan. He's obviously had that really bad injury that he had at Leicester that kept him out for so long. Um, what's the prognosis this morning on 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 Fofana and are there worries about his sort of robustness, let's call it, um, to play the rigours of football at this level for so long? I'm really hoping that he can survive the kind of because Chelsea are going to be playing a lot more games than Leicester have played in their past seasons, right? Chelsea are going to be playing a lot more games, and he did come back from a really damning injury. And I feel like a lot of people forget that he was actually he was out for I think it was seven or eight months um last season because of a really bad injury. So him coming back and him still playing to the level that he's playing, it's gonna take a toll on him. And I saw him holding his leg um after he scored his goal and I'm just thinking oh my goodness is he going to be injured do we need to bring in Trevor Chalabar but that's the good thing about it right we've got Trevor Chalabar on the bench who in my eyes could be just as good as Wesley Fofana he's he's had a season where he's been in and out with Thomas Tuchel and this can be a time where if Wesley Fofana does face a long-term injury Trevor Chalabar can really show exactly why Thomas Tuchel brought him into this team in the first place. So although I have worries about Fofana's health, I'm not too worried knowing that Trevor Chalabar is the guy that's going to take his place if Fofana's out for that long. So, yeah, I'm I'm not too worried about it. But the only person I'm still worried about is N'Golo Kante because he is two, he's two players in one. Not having mm-hmm. N'Golo Kante yesterday, it was, it was still, it was kind of bittersweet. Yeah, okay, he's getting better. And we like to see that, the fact that he's back in training and stuff. But I would have loved to have seen him play. And is he ever going to play again for this Chelsea side? I don't know. Um, there's been so much happening elsewhere Joe I want to bring you back in here there's been so much happening elsewhere you know with Erling Haaland and the injuries at Chelsea and Liverpool getting back to form uh, it's it's been it's been a minute since Man United uh, played a match so therefore it's been a minute since they you know lost conceding six goals but let's not forget how, how poor they were last weekend um, and you as an eyewitness to to that massacre uh, at the Etihad 
last week. Uh, take us through what you saw um, from, I suppose, an outsider's perspective or, um, and what you think this United team is lacking at the minute and, and what you think they're going to need going forward. Well, they were so confident, weren't they? It felt like they turned a bit of a corner under Ten Hag and they, they were ready to not compete with City over the season, but maybe compete with them in a game. And and then we saw uh, no Rodri in the team, no Ruben Diaz. And I think there was a bit of confidence from United and then and then it all went downhill, didn't it? I think, was it Dillo got booked for, for bringing down Grealish in the first minute and, and, and that was it. And I think Ten Hag said after it, it was confidence as soon as that second and third one went in, the floodgates opened and, and the heads dropped. And uh, I, I do think the game was more about how good City were than how good, how bad United were but it was very very bad from United you, you can't you can't defend like that in a derby and I've spoken to United fans and I tried to say oh well you know the second half there was some positives and, and they replied saying no you, you can never concede six in a derby there's there's no positives to take um, and it, it was interesting Ten Hag yesterday didn't he? he said thank you to City thank you to Pep Guardiola for, for giving us that that reality check so um, yeah there, there's a lot of there's a lot of injuries there's a lot of sort of internal debates on various positions various bigger players people like Cristiano Ronaldo and and, and Harry Maguire I know Maguire's injured now but um, yeah they're, they're playing uh, Nicosia in the in the Europa League and I think that that team sheet's going to be quite interesting to see what he really thought of the derby who who he really trusts to to continue because there was a lot of under par performances and you can't turn up to City and and not give 100% because you're probably going to get beat anyway but if you don't try and you don't win your battles you're definitely going to get beat I just worry that if Ten Hag is going to end up thanking every team that batters it this <laughs> season it's going to be like like that Alanis Morissette song um, <laughs> I suppose one of the positives that United had last week was uh, Cristiano Ronaldo sort of saved his legs he didn't get any uh, mm. strains or injuries or knocks because he's, he sat in the bench um, Joe Ten Hag said it was out of respect for his career that he didn't subject him to that. What are we supposed to read into that? I, I was very surprised when he said that. It's, it's quite a, a big statement, isn't it, to to say that? My guess is exactly that. He, he thought it's probably more trouble than it's worth to bring Ronaldo on and, and get those those headlines of, of bringing him on at what six one down was it? Um, but the, you just get the feeling he, does, he doesn't fancy Ronaldo and. He's clearly a, a brilliant player, but he doesn't fit into a system. He's 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 only there really to to score goals. And I think Ten Hag wants a bit more from his his attacking players. And it, it's it's strange because you can't have Ronaldo as your your second choice striker only playing the Europa League games because he's never going to be happy with that. And you, you feel like it's it you get his point that it's it's not sort of how his career should be ending. But you don't get the feeling that he's got a future. At United, it feels like it's it's meandering towards an end. Um, yeah, it's it, it's a weird situation for a player that they heralded so much when he came back last season as as a as a brilliant brilliant signing, and it's just sort of tailed off, hasn't it? Yeah, maybe when he when he goes to the Middle East for the World Cup, maybe he'll take a movers <laughs> van with him and just just stay there just for stay a there, yeah. month or so. Yeah, um, Ian, I wanted to bring you back in here. You said something interesting earlier on about about the England setup and and how uh, if you were Gareth Southgate, heaven forbid, if you were Gareth Southgate, you might 
build the attack around somebody like Phil Foden. One of the stories to emerge again over the weekends, well, it wasn't the weekend, it was actually on Monday, was, was the form of James Madison. Performing in a very, very poor Leicester team overall between the end of last season and the start of this, he's something like the second on the list for for goal-scoring contributions uh, over the course of 2022, playing in a struggling team. But he's seen, he can't get a call up for England for love nor money. Um, what have you made of, of, of his form under former Liverpool manager Brendan Rodgers and it's too late for him to go to the World Cup now, isn't it? Yeah, just before I mention it, out of respect for your careers, I won't be coming on this podcast anymore. Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> You've already done the damage. Yeah. Um, Madison, he's quite a divisive figure, isn't he? Polarising. I think he's one of these players that... I don't, it's, it's weird, isn't it? With some footballers, it sounds stupid, but it's the way that they look and the way that they act, not what they do as a footballer. And I think with Madison, some of the things that he does and just the way that he is, I think some fans just don't like him. And I must admit, I'm kind of veering towards that side. But in terms of his actual footballing ability, I mean, Leicester have been terrible for, for most of this season. But it's just a it's a Brendan Rodgers team, isn't it? You know, we're just going to play this one way and we're not going to change it, despite the fact that we've sold our best defender and everybody else is injured and the defenders have coming out quite good enough. So Madison, in that respect, he, it's the ideal platform for him in a way because he's playing on a team that's set up to attack. And yeah, I, the problem he's got is, despite all of his numbers, is that he's playing for Leicester. He's playing for Leicester. He needs to be moving on to somebody else. I don't mean that in a nasty... Well, I, well, well, I do mean it in a nasty way, but you know what I mean. You know, he, he's, he, if he was playing for... It, that's just the way it always is with England. It always has been. You can have a player who's been brilliant and playing for one of the lower league, uh, the lower teams in the Premier League. And then someone who's playing OK, uh, City, Liverpool, United, and they get their chance earlier. That's just the way it's always been. It doesn't make it right, but it's because they're playing at a certain level. But... Yeah, I mean, if he's not played now, they haven't got any games left. There's no way. The only way I'll get into the squad is if one or two players get injured. He does absolutely brilliantly over the next four weeks. And suddenly, because they've got 26 uh, men in the squad, they go, right, we'll just go, we'll take him then because he's one of our form players. I remember on the podcast last time, I mentioned that this is the one World Cup where you've got to take your form players to the middle of a season. You know, they've got the form taking it. And there's a, they, they literally play about nine days after the last Premier League game. So why on earth wouldn't you? So... Yeah, I'm, for, for James Madison, yeah, I can see his talent. He's a little bit annoying, but um, I don't think he's going to go to the World Cup. And if, how old is he, by the way? He's not actually, He's he just seems to have been around for ages, but I think he's only like 25, isn't he? So we've still got another chance. Mm -hmm. um, from the men's national team to the women's national team, Anisa, I want to bring you back in here um, just before we close out this week's podcast. There's a massive game Friday night at Wembley. We've got the European champions, the Lionesses. Uh, they're taking on the uh, CONCACAF and obviously world uh, champions, the United States women's national team. The game is sold out and it's being sold as somewhat of an intercontinental showdown, a World Cup final preview, perhaps. Um, have you had a chance to focus on this game as yet, Anita? And if so, um, what have you got to tell the listeners about what they should be looking out for on this game? How excited are you for this one? I have not been checking in on this game and it's just for one reason only. There are probably a list of injuries that just takes the excitement out of the game, really. You look at both teams and in you you want to see the stars of these teams, right? And it's just, there's so many injuries that you just think, okay, who's going to be in a starting lineup? Is this going to be something that's going to be as 
amazing as it first was advertised. So when it first came out, we were thinking, okay, this is time for the lionesses to kind of take into the USA women's because we all know what the USA women's are like, right? We all know that they're kind of, I want to say, they they've been the pinnacle of football. What what England and the lionesses have been wanting to kind of achieve that level of status that they have in the United States is what the lionesses are achieving are, are working towards achieving in England. Right? They are kind of setting the bar, or they've set the bar already, and England are almost there now. We want to go there. We want to show them that yeah, you're coming to our turf. You're coming to our home. We're going to be you. World Cup's coming over to, we have the capacity to do this. But neither USA or the Lionesses have their full teams to really show what they're both capable of. So I'm not as excited as I would be or as I was about a month ago when the tickets first dropped. But I'm still excited to kind of see it and kind of go to the match and see exactly what happens during the match and who's going to come out on top. So, yeah, I don't think it's kind of the same narrative as setting the tone for the World Cup anymore as it was before, though. Yeah, it's, it's funny as well. I think the United States, they're sort of in the midst of a bit of a revolution themselves. There's uh, yeah. a lot of players in the mid-30s, in, you know, 100, 150, some even two over 200 caps, uh, beginning to move on and a lot of new blood been been, been blooded through. And I suppose it remains to be seen whether this generation can be as effective as, as that all domineering Olympic world uh, gold medal winning team uh, over the last decade or so. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you on that. <laughs> You're with me on that. I thought you were going to elaborate a little bit. Never mind. Oh, you were going to elaborate? Yeah. Oh, Peter, yeah. Honest, Peter, honestly, I have checked out of this match. I'm going to keep it ex- very real with everyone here. I've checked out. You know, I love championing the women in the, in this game, but I've checked out of this match. I feel like a lot of my friends, me and my mates, we're all going together. We've literally just thought, should we just stay at home, order a pizza and just watch it on TV and see what happens? That's how much we've kind of checked out of it. So I, I do apologise that I'm not giving my usual enthusiasm today. Well, you'll, but... be, you'll be checking back in next week when we're when we're, when we're we're dissecting the fallout of this game. And everybody's, everybody's singing it's coming home all over again because they've beaten a, a severely understrength United States team 1-0 or something. Anyway, Listen, when we beat them 6-0, I'm going to be the first one. Sweet, Caroline, yeah. you'll see yeah. me on TV, mate. You'll see me there. Anyway, fans uh, celebrating. That's about all. Uh, well, hopefully, hopefully it'll be a good uh, a good victory for the um, for the lionesses uh, to to continue on their great form from the Euros. Anyway, uh, that's all we have time for today. So, um, from myself and Anita to you, Ian and Joe, thanks very much for joining us. To all our listeners and viewers everywhere else, uh, please uh, pick up the highlights of this uh, on social and tell your friends. Uh, that's all we've got time for on Football Digest this week. Um, thanks very much for joining us and goodbye. 